Welcome to the Think Education podcast. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, a colleague and friend, Dr. Trifiro, uh, and we're going to have a, I'm hoping, a, a really, well, a bit meandering, a bit detail, a bit discussion, um, and a, a bit reflection um, uh, on uh, quality assurance, transnational education, and uh, and sort of all things in between. Um it's a it's a great pleasure to have uh, Dr. Fabrizio on the the podcast. Um, I've known I've known Fabrizio for for quite a few years now. I think um, in various guises. Um, uh, Fabrizio is an international expert in quality assurance and international education in every sense of those words. Um, you are my go to person when I whenever I think about quality assurance uh, or, or any of these issues. Um, Fabrizio heads the uh, International Quality Review Services and International Strategic Engagement at ECTIS, which is formerly UK NARIC, um, which obviously will be very familiar to, to many of our, our listeners. Um, this is the agency that manages the qualification recognition function on behalf of the UK government. Uh, and, and such, therefore, Fabrizio is ideally placed to, to talk about local and international issues in, in this regard. Um, in this role, uh, Fabrizio has developed the TNE Quality Benchmark, which is the only international scheme aimed at improving international recognition of TNE provision, and we're, we're certainly going to, to talk about that in, in some, some detail, I hope. Uh, Fabrizio is a member of the Board of Directors of the International Network for Quality Assurance Agencies in Higher Education, which I'm, you're going to have to correct me because in my head, I always pronounce that as inquahi. And I'm sure that's wrong, but that's how I, however I always have it sounding my head. Um, is that, is yeah, that, that, that's pronounced correctly. Okay, yeah, wonderful. Probably better than I, I can pronounce it. Um, uh, and he's also a member of the accreditation committee of the British Accreditation Council. That's back. That's much easier to, to remember. Uh, prior to joining ECTIS, Fabrizio was with the UK Quality Assurance Agency, or, or QAA, for over 10 years, where he led on the quality assurance of UK T&E. And recently, he supported the Office for Students in England in developing their international engagement work in relation to T&E. Uh, he's a reviewer for a range of international quality assurance bodies. And as I said, the, the very much go to for, for many of these issues for many of us uh, that work in this this part of, of international higher education. Uh, Fabrizio, it's, it's a pleasure to have you have you on um, uh, to, to chat. Um, Obviously, as evident, uh, Judith um, is uh, not joining us today. She's uh, given me an opportunity to have a conversation, as, as we were joking before, Fabrizio, with uh, a non-Wales connection. Although you, you did say you are actually re relatively <laughs> close. Just on the border. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but just we got one little, one little line of demarcation that, uh, that separates that. So, um, but uh, but uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And um, I wonder if, um, if to maybe uh, sort of... Uh, kick us off. Um, you could maybe talk a little bit about what is it that you you do with with Ectis. Um, uh, I, I yeah. appreciate that's a very very big question because you do an awful lot yeah. of things. But uh, just to give us a little bit of context, if you don't mind. Well, thank you very much, Chris, and a pleasure to to be joining you for, uh, on this podcast. I've been tuning in on some of them, uh, and I, I really enjoy them. Uh, and um, yes, um, and thank you for the kind introduction, the kind words. Um, 
So what are dual actis? That's, that's a good question. So it takes me to reflect a bit. Uh, as, as you were saying, actis is um, is the agency that manages um, the qualification recognition function on behalf of government. Uh, this is a function that used to be known as UK NARIC. Uh, now, uh, following the, the UK departure from uh, uh, from the European Union, uh, Brexit, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, uh, <laughs> we had to, to rename uh, ourselves as UK NARIC because NARIC is, uh, is a European Union initiative. So what do I do there? My, recently, I've changed uh, a bit of role. Uh, my new title is Head of Stakeholder Engagement and in International Quality Reviews. Um, now, I joined uh, um, ACTIS uh, in, uh, in 2019, so just over three years ago, uh, from the QA. So when I joined ACTIS, the idea was to, to try to um, connect quality assurance and recognition. The two are strictly intertwined uh, because uh, uh, recognition is critically reliant on, uh, on quality assurance, on, uh, on trust. Uh, um, and, um, uh, and, and that's that the expertise that are brought within, within ACTIS. And uh, so we tried to develop services uh, that could help the international education community in uh, supporting quality internationalization, in particular supporting uh, the recognition of qualifications in, in traditionally critical areas for recognition. Uh, this may include uh, professional vocational qualifications, but also includes transnational education. Transnational education is what uh, I used to work on uh, for many years, and the idea was to try to develop some services that could that could enhance, could improve the the recognition climate for TNE qualifications. Uh, so this is what occupied me the first years of uh, of Miss Dana acting, and still occupies me. Uh, so we developed this TNE quality benchmark service that you referred to. Uh, we may have time to chat a bit more about it later. Uh, but more broadly, I also lead on uh, strategic engagement with key stakeholders. Hmm. In particular, in in areas where ACTIS and UK ENIC have not traditionally uh, engaged with, such as quality assurance, such as senior management with, with international function within universities. Uh, so these are uh, very briefly some of the the roles I uh, uh, I cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Thanks. It's it's always amazing, is it, when you talk mm. to? Well, I mean, it's true, I guess, of any profession. But when you talk to mm. people in our world and they sum up. <laughs> in, in one sentence oh no this is what I do and then you start to think hang on that, that's a, a ridiculously large portfolio um, I was wondering actually uh, to, to take you almost back to step um, when you're talking about um, this sort of interplay between recognition and, um, and yeah. quality assurance I was wondering what, what are the, the main barriers to recognition particularly within the T&E mm-hmm. space I mean because obviously that's if you're looking yeah. at building mechanisms to support that what, what's What's in the way of that, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I like that question. In fact, we, we just, uh, uh, I think it was a couple of days ago, we ran a session um, uh, aside the Education World Forum, which has taken place this week in London. This is a, a gathering of uh, ministries and, uh, and senior figures uh, from around the world, which is led by the British Council and, uh, um, and the, the Department for, for Business Development and Trade. Um, uh, uh, yeah, 
DBT. Um, and um, we, we, we ran a session focusing exactly on uh, online learning, transnational education, the opportunities, the benefits, the value of this non-traditional uh, modes of education delivery, but also the challenges. Mm. Uh, because uh, in many countries, uh, TNE uh, in different forms um, t- uh, is not was not recognised. Any qualifications are not uh, straightforwardly recognised. In particular, certain types of TNE qualifications, online learning, of course, is the the, the main examples. Uh, and you, you're based in Dubai, so you work in, in a re- you work in a region uh, um, where online learning is not always uh, uh, recognised. Um, but also other types of TNE uh, uh, provisions are not straightforwardly recognised, such as transnational education delivery uh, offered uh, uh, in partnership with uh, local providers, in particular uh, local providers without the awarding power, mm-hmm. uh, or transnational education offered in fair countries, specifically where there might not be uh, a well-understood or a well-established regulatory framework for incoming TNE or TNE from uh, country of origins where there is not a well-understood or, or well-established quotation uh, framework for outbound TNE. So um, credential evaluators uh, often do not understand basically why, how, uh, um, how TNE operations Operate, work, and how quality in particular is maintained. So the main challenge, the main challenges to recognition are really ultimately due to perceptions or misperceptions uh, about quality. Uh, and um, and this for a number of reasons. Now, uh, based on my experience, um, I think that. Possibly the, the main uh, the main differences in understanding which uh, rest behind some of the challenges and obstacles to recognition lie on uh, different views of what should remain comparable when you offer education provision in other ways than uh, traditional mm. uh, brick and mortar home campus in person provision that is often taken as the standard. That is education provision that we know that it is quality assured in different countries in specific ways. But then, when education providers uh, innovate, such as through online learning, such as through transnational education, or even through micro credentials and all that, then questions are posed about whether quality standards are safeguarded when it comes to different modes of delivery. In the specific case of TNE and online learning, um, there is an idea in certain countries that everything should be comparable, yeah, including including the learning experience, including the learning environment, including everything that comes into the the category of learning inputs, um, and that is behind some of the perception of uh, TNE being of a lesser quality because by definition TNE is a different mode of delivery. It takes place in different places. It's delivered in different ways, so that the learning environment will differ. Um, countries which uh, 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 adopt a more learning outcome-based approach, so they focus on uh, the standards of achievement, what graduates should be expected to have achieved at the end of the studies in terms of competencies, skills, and all that. Yeah. If you focus on that, then 
you may disregard differences in learning environment and learning inputs um, as long as students still re uh, receive the sufficient uh, support to allow them to achieve the expected early outcomes and as long as students expectations are clearly managed from day one this i'm a student uh, enrolling myself on a TNE program an online program is the institutions telling me clearly from the start what kind of yes learning environment that we'll be receiving so as long as uh, expectations are managed and as long as support is provided to students to achieve the expected learning outcomes then in my particular view the uk ENIC view is that uh, diversity of modes of delivery is is to be embraced and uh, um, and, and allowed but this is not universally shared so so uh, i think misunderstanding around this uh, this issue of comparability, this issue between uh, learning inputs, learning outputs, is, is, is one of the key reasons behind uh, lack of recognition. There are also other reasons, such as uh, protectionism, uh, particular um, political orientations towards private provision, which may also come in, in the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a... I mean, yes, of course, as you say, there are, there are going to be many more variables, but I think this, this issue... Um, I mean, it's it's a very, I think, a very interesting way of, of actually framing the, the the problem, isn't it? That that, as you say, the comparability between the outcomes versus the experience, and um, certainly, I mean, traditionally, T and E was looking to replicate, right? It was looking to be as best as possible identical because that was what underpinned the quality assumption, right? It was if it looked the same, then it's the same. Now, you know, if you have a UK degree that's being that's being run in Southeast Asia or in China, well, the environment is massively different. Um, the weather's different. Yeah. The the building. I mean, everything about it is is different. But, and so, and arguably, that should be part of the value, right? It's it's about the contextualizing the knowledge into somewhere to somewhere else. And I, I read um, uh, some very interesting research a little while ago that was talking about actually by completely replicating the same buildings or the same classrooms or the same you know, paint or artwork, um, rather than actually creating that link between, say, the branch campus and the home campus, you can also be seen as creating a further barrier between the local students in the country and the, local, and the foreign provider because you, you've created a, a, a different space of, uh, you know, so, so we're talking about like decolonizing the space and looking at the way in which people perceive their attachment to it. And um, yeah. it's in a very interesting area. And I think what, what you're, you're highlighting is a, is a positive evolution of, of the way that we yeah. conceive of TNE and measure TNE. Um, I guess the question then yeah. is, is how do we then factor and, and sort of integrate that new learning back into the home and back into the, the, the whole, right? It's, uh, yeah. um, because, I mean, is this something that... Uh, is sort of challenged or contested at a ministerial level, at a, a sort of regulatory level, at a parental yeah. level, or all yeah. of them? Yeah, 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 it, all, all, um, a bit all of those. And it is definitely a very fascinating area, and, and things have evolved, uh, as, you, as you hinted to, over the years, uh, with uh, um, uh, different jurisdictions, different stakeholders being uh, familiarizing themselves with TNE. I think where, where you operate, Dubai is a good example. Um, uh, Dubai um, is well known for its free trade zones. When they started to develop free trade zones and inviting uh, foreign uh, universities to open up branch campuses, they had a very um, 
very restrictive view of things. That's because it was the beginning, mm. and, and it has to do with trust. You need to trust uh, someone in order to to allow recognition. So they, uh, the KHDA, the local regulator uh, overseeing private provision and foreign provision in in the free trade zone, said you you got to deliver the same program in exactly the same way which you offer yes. uh, at the home campus, and yeah. that's why KHDA. Uh, were initially only allowed branch campuses rather than collaborative partnerships. Yes. It was mistrust towards collaborative partnerships <laughs> because there was a concern that by working with a partner would you dilute the quality or the sameness yeah, yeah. of uh, the degrees that, that you would offer, the, the, the awarding body would offer back home. But then there was an issue. I remember doing a review of uh, a UK provision in, uh, in Dubai uh, and this uh, strict comparability um, uh, principle limited the extent to which uh, UK or any foreign uh, awarding body uh, operating in Dubai could meet local, local needs. Um, for example, Islamic, Islamic finance is something that uh, um, there is a request mm-hmm. for yes. in the region, but many, uh, many institutions coming from the UK are not offering that program in the UK or were not. So they were limiting the extent to which they could offer relevant provision in country because of the strict, the strict comparability criteria. Now, with time, KHDA has changed the approach because uh, uh, they started to, to, to allow for, for a more flexible delivery based on uh, an institution with a track record, a positive track record with their operations in, in Dubai. And again, so trust allows uh, allows to open up and, and to be more flexible um, and things are developing but but there are still there are still concerns in many parts of the world you, you can see if you go to china and if we, if we think you know china has, has traditionally not recognized foreign online learning um, now when it came uh, when covid came about of course they had to uh, <laughs> They have to um, um, temporarily um, accept mm-hmm. online learning. Um, and I had a conversation at the time with the, the, the local credential evaluator, CSCSC, and, uh, and and they were uh, from, from they you know from the early days of the pandemic. They said uh, uh, you know this is only a temporary exception. We, we recognize online learning, but also online learning. Uh, the, the online provision of programs which uh, were supposed to be delivered face to face. Right. You wouldn't yes. would recognize online learning, even if, they, as a matter of fact, during the pandemic there was no difference between an online learning intended as an online provision or online learning intended face to face, but but moved to, to online provision because of the pandemic. Once the, the, the pandemic uh, um, uh, restrictions um, were lifted, in China, uh, as you may have read, it was in the news a couple of months ago, China went back to to their position, original position, we won't recognize foreign online learning. Um, the perception is that uh, uh, the learning experience is different uh, and, and that impacts on, on the quality of uh, the provision offered to students. And interestingly, they took the feedback that uh, a number of international of Chinese students studying uh, online during the pandemic uh, provided of their experience as a confirmation that online provision is of a lesser quality. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know exactly the, uh, 
the details, but it's more a question I pose to myself because those international students, those Chinese students who were studying online for international degrees were supposed to go in person. Yeah. And probably they paid quite a lot of money for that. So they, for sure they were disappointed about their experience because they were expecting a different type of experience and they paid for a different type of experience. So, so that probably is more about managing expectations, as I was saying earlier on. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but perhaps the standards uh, of, of achievement are, and I'm pretty sure that would be comparable to what they would have had achieved if they, if they had started in person. So again, it is, it is about the learning environment and, uh, and uh, uh, versus the learning outputs. There are, of course, serious concerns. In certain countries accept online learning, but depends on, um, on the disciplinary areas. Uh, I think uh, this is a position of Oman, and perhaps even even the UAE, that they would accept uh, online learning, but not in those areas where um, where uh, um, a hands-on uh, lab component is required. Um, um, and um, so, yeah, perhaps you can do online learning for for for, for law or business, but not for for medicine or engineering. So there, and there are some fair points there to consider. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and the the learning environment, you know, face to face to online. Yes, of course, is very different. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. I think what one of the things that's interesting to to maybe consider is the the learning that took place online, particularly during the initial part or early stages of the pandemic, was considerably subpar quality teaching because people were learning and teaching in a pandemic. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah. online learning at its optimal. It was online learning where people yeah. are from home with no ability to move. Most people haven't been trained. Some don't have sure. the right equipment. I mean, it's you know, many many factors. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting. I mean, I suppose the language used, as you, you said, from China, where it's a temporary uh, exemption or temporary acceptance, um, yeah. is uh, is is certainly a more. Uh, transparent process or, or approach right because it, it is it is saying that this is a response to these unique set of circumstances to as, as, yeah. as yeah. opposed to you know in other places in the world where online learning is not real two minutes after the pandemic hits it's exactly the same it's the same quality you can charge the same money and then it's just reversed without you know real understanding it's a i mean <clears throat> i guess it's, it's part of a broader question though right i mean about the how do you how do you quality assure online education? Um, you know, you've mentioned the KHDA several times, and and uh, and yeah. and at the onset of the pandemic, you know, the KHDA had released uh, a series of tools and and frameworks uh, for school and, and educators here in, in in Dubai, particularly looking at how we, you know, could better support online teaching and online learning, yeah. and and you know, it's now been, yeah. it's been built into the the school inspection framework, right? And, you know, um, technology readiness, yeah. for example. So um, I'm just, you know, curious um, yeah. how you're working through through that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, it's interesting because uh, online learning, of course, is not new. No, um, no, you sure. Take the, the Open University or the University of London in the UK. They've been operating at the University of London for over t- uh, 100 years. Um, they would have been delivering distance Education, the Open University, when was established in the in the sixties, uh, and, uh, and they have uh, uh, been regulated, quality assured, uh, uh, in the UK as part of uh, uh, the quality assurance systems of the day. 
Yes. Um, when I was at the QA, we were looking at uh, Open University exactly uh, uh, in the same way we're looking at uh, um, brick and mortar uh, universities, um, in the sense that the standards apply to all education providers. Doesn't matter how they operate, they have to meet the same standards. The way they will meet the standards will differ depending on the, of the type of provision they offer. Mm. And this has to do very much around things that we learned during the pandemic. That in order to do things properly online, you need to think not only about digitalizing content, but how do you engage students? How do you support students? How do you support uh, 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 teachers? Um, and uh, and all those things. So the, the, the things, uh, so say the standard is that uh, students need to be supported uh, appropriately, that uh, lectures need to be supported appropriately in any type of provision. But then the question that a peer reviewer would ask when reviewing institutions would be different depending if uh, the institution uh, offer in-person provision or online provision. Now, um, so this, this was the traditional approach to, to in, in England. Now with the fit for students um, in the UK, now with the fit for students in England, similar, uh, a, a similar approach is, uh, is adopted in the sense that there's even more freedom in terms of how institutions quality assure the provision because the, the Office for Students look at uh, uh, outcomes. Look, uh, and so as long as the graduate outcomes are um, mid certain threshold, really doesn't matter how an institution offer that provision. Um, uh, now, this, this is to, to provide an example in the UK, but, um, uh, but what, with, what, what happened with the pandemic uh, is that uh, um, in every country, uh, uh, most education providers have to switch to, uh, to, to online provision. So th th this, uh, this, uh, uh, the problem of how to quality assure online provision started to crop up in every single country and internationally given also the cross-border nature of online provision. So there has been a more focus by more quality assurance bodies about how to do that. And different countries have, have developed a number of guidelines, and, uh, different approaches to sit, to sit their needs, even inquiry. Uh, so the network uh, I, um, uh, I'm involved in, uh, we developed guidelines for quality assurance bodies looking at online learning, so trying to inform best practice uh, for quality assuring online provision. Um, and, uh, and there are very overarching uh, standards which don't tell you how to do things, but just to be aware that uh, you need to pay attention to particular aspects when you, when you look at online provision different, in different ways which you would do for in-person provision. So I'm being very general here, but um, uh, I would say that uh, one of the benefits of uh, um, uh, the pandemic has been that uh, uh, more stakeholders have started to understand what it takes to deliver quality and excellent online education provision. And, uh, and this, uh, as overall, improved, I think, the quality of uh, online provision and blended provision, but also has allowed most stakeholders to understand that it is possible to obtain uh, an acceptable uh, uh, qualification through different modes of provision, uh, which will help in terms of facilitating recognition. Uh, and this, uh, and this is, this is, uh, 
And, and this is an important realization uh, for the international education community because uh, you, you may know that the Global Recognition Convention has been uh, has come into force uh, last uh, March this year. And the Global Recognition Convention is there uh, to integrate the existing five regional conventions, such as the Lisbon Recognition Convention for the European area. Uh, uh, it is based on similar principles, but it places particular emphasis on alternative modes of education provision, such as online provision, such as transnational education, such as uh, micro-credentials, and encourages the international education community to develop tools that can support confidence in those types of education provision because uh, there is a realization that this, you know, this alternative mode of education provision have an incredible potential to help uh, the international community achieving some of uh, um, the important shared goals that uh, it has put itself, such as sustainable development goals for widening access to education, supporting lifelong learning. So there is a, a great realization of the incredible potential of online learning, but also an awareness that quality needs to be maintained and, and the quality assurance community is responding to that. Uh, somehow, and then I kind of conclude this, <laughs> this long roundabout uh, answer, somehow this, is, this reflects the, the traditional demand, dynamic between higher education, education provision and regulation. It is a bit of uh, playing catch up education providers respond to needs out there and the quality assurance bodies regulators try to catch up and uh, and this game this uh, catch up game is played so the, the dividing line is between innovation quality and quality assurance bodies having to trade the line between being inhibitors inhibitors of change or enablers of change and that's that, that's a, that's a, an interesting line uh, to to navigate yeah i would imagine so because you're trying to on the, as you say on the one hand hold on to stability tradition form whatever it might be yeah. which which underpins the the sort of the the as you said before the trust in the quality right it's this is yeah. the, the rock on which we base it right this this is and yet yeah um we simply can't use yesterday's tools to 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 That's think right. about today at all um how does how on a practical basis how do you navigate that mm. i mean i love that 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 innovation in inhibitors versus sort of innovators i mean that's how do you navigate that on a on a practical basis is it is it sort of just give and take gradual or or many many battles uh, yeah and, and again yeah and again different countries different education system and jurisdictions navigate that line in different ways and you, you use the right word it is uh, you say rock it is about avoiding the risk of fossilizing practice. <laughs> uh, every time you, you develop standards, there's a risk of fossilizing uh, current practice. And this is a debate we had within Hinquahi when uh, we recently we developed, uh, uh, we had these gardens of good practice and we reviewed them, uh, we developed them into international uh, standards. One of the debates within um, the board, uh, and I must say that I, I, I was uh, uh, one of the, uh, the people raising this question, is you need to be careful not to fossilize practice. As soon as you develop standards for quality assurance bodies, then what you're saying is uh, quality assurance should look like this way. Yeah. But at a moment of change, 
need to be very careful, need to trade carefully. So the way quotation on bodies navigate, there are again different countries doing different ways, different regions doing different ways. In Europe, I'll take you the example of Europe, uh, the European higher education area is possibly uh, the regional uh, higher education space which has been um, uh, which has been underpinned by uh, a number of formal and common instruments has been an intentional effort to um, for the national uh, uh, education spaces to come together and to, to be more comparable uh, to support mobility uh, and partnerships. Um, and there are a number of tools underpinning the European education area. And one of these tools is the European Standards and Guidelines, which outlines general principles for quality assurance in the, um, in, in the European education area. And currently, um, the European Standards and Guidelines are, are being revised so there is a, a moment in, in time where quality national coalitional bodies or regional networks, international networks need to sit back and try to uh, check whether their approach is still fit for purpose. And the outcome can be different depending on how consultation takes place uh, and, and how um, the quality assurance body is responsive to change. But generally you would have... Uh, national institutions, bodies or regional networks having a moment of taking stock and trying to, to reset um, uh, the position. And as I was saying, it is a, a catch-up game. It's, it's never-ending. Yeah, yeah, and particularly, I guess, given the, the well, yeah, ongoing, also rapid um, innovations that we're seeing in higher education. I mean, the new models, the, the new structures, the new agreements, the, the new delivery... Etc. I mean, it's it, it it's it's a very interesting reality where you're you're trying to lock something down so you've at least got a guideline against which you can benchmark practice, right, or, or measure, um, yeah. you know, uh, something. And yet, as you say, almost as soon as you've done it, it has to have the sort of the asterisk saying it's still actually moving Best and before. it's still <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. it's by date. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which is, I mean, it's, it's crazy in the world of quality assurance. Um, and yet, I think a very, a very, as providing it's managed properly, a very refreshing way of, of, of looking at it because it is saying it, you know, it has to be ongoingly responsive. It, it has to be contextually understood, um, which comes back to the point that you were making about the comparability of learning outcomes and, and learning experience environment, right? It, it's, it's, You've got to yeah. you've got to maintain quality, yes, but there are ways that you can do that that allow for yeah. you know tomorrow. Um, yeah. But presumably, though, that that must make the dialogue between agencies and governing bodies harder because you're you're not you're not having something you have something less concrete. Perhaps is that is that correct? Um. Uh, yeah. Um. Well, let's say, again, it really depends um, where, in which context you operate. Um, for example, it depends if uh, regulation is enshrined in law, in a particular legislation, or mm. whether uh, it isn't. Where this is the case, then uh, it may take more efforts to change practice. I'll give you an example, which is related to what, to, to what we were saying. I mean, what we're saying really, in particular when it comes to internationalization, uh, is that it's absolutely key for national regulators, in particular when it comes to transnational education and learning, to communicate with each other. 
Yes. It is um, uh, it, because uh, it is a matter of building trust, building reciprocal understanding, which then can enable to, to come to an agreement of what uh, quality should look like for these types of TNE provision and, and how can we work together to enable, to, to untap the, f- the progressive potentials of this uh, of this modes of, pro- of education provision. Um, we all agree that, uh, uh, you know, again, taking a bit of a tangent, but we know that international, uh, the international mobile uh, um, uh, population has over the years remained pretty much constant in, in around 2% of the total uh, education population in the world, which means that transnational education and learning have an incredible potential to widen access. So how can we come together and, and ensure that that happens? You need communication, you need to co- communication to check whether there are quality assurance gaps, which may hinder trust, or there could, there could be quality assurance overlaps, mm. which, uh, 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 which may hinder development because uh, then education providers operating across borders are burdened by double regulatory framework and that may become very costly, very difficult. So cooperation is important. Uh, years ago, and actually led by KHDA, um, we set up uh, an initiative called the Quality Beyond uh, uh, Borders. The idea was to to invite a number of key quality assurance bodies in sending and receiving countries of TNE to try to develop a shared understanding and uh, try to do things together to lessen the burden on regulators, on, on providers, but also uh, um, uh, underpin confidence in, uh, on TNE and international stakeholders. Everyone agreed that we need to cooperate, but certain agencies couldn't cooperate mm. because they operate within uh, um, very uh, strict uh, legislative framework. Right. So they cannot, for example, do joint review activity because legislation doesn't allow them to do that. Uh, in countries where uh, quality assurance framework are not embedded in law or perhaps only at a general level, then there's more flexibility. So um, it really depends, I think, the context in which, uh, in which you operate. Sometimes the will is there, but um, perhaps there's, the, uh, there's not the, 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 the legislative framework which allow you to, um, uh, to, to, to do the things that you would like to do in order to strengthen cooperation and uh, and uh, recognize education provision, uh, which is less traditional in form. I see. Yeah. Um, so where where do you do you see where do you see the the role of quality assurance then in the over the next whatever five, ten, fifteen, however many years? I mean, is it are we looking mm-hmm. at more, more, more further integration? You know navigating these legislative um, frameworks or, you know, are we thinking more supranational bodies that, that sort of have some form of power or authority embedded? You know, I mean, where do you, where do you yeah. see the role of, 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 QA, yeah. of QA going? Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting question also because QA has many functions. Uh, I was thinking about that while you were saying, you know, QA, often we talk about quality assurance, but then you have... Um, you have uh, uh, a gatekeeping function, for example. You want to um, uh, to to act as a gatekeeper to uh, public funding, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have uh, the accountability function for uh, for public funding or, um, or for or, or for private funding. So students, student fees, you need to be accountable to to ever pay for education. You have uh, an announcement function. Um, uh, and you have a reputational function, uh, and 
so the different accreditation schemes or quality assurance schemes or, or regulatory schemes uh, have uh, covered uh, diff- different functions. In terms of the future, I think there's going to be uh, still uh, an interplay between all these dimensions. Announcement is absolutely key. Um, and, and I think more institutions, more quality assurance bodies are turning to enhancement, in particular as uh, they've been operating for a number of years. So they've been uh, uh, regulating and looking at uh, uh, education providers more or less in the same way two or three times. How can you do things differently? There, there are a bit of uh, there are min- diminishing returns to look at an institution in the same way. So what you do is to see whether you can focus on certain areas and you support the sector in, uh, with, with challenges that, that they may meet. So that the, there's been uh, um, an explosion of guidance documents everywhere, particularly during the pandemic, to guide institutions now to do online learning, or to do tenure, or to do micro-credentials. I think possibly it's going to be uh, this role will continue to, to take place. Um, whether Regional, agent, regional networks such as Hinkway or Anka in Europe will, pay, will play a greater role to, um, uh, to develop shared understanding and shared approaches is there to, 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 to be seen. Um, it would be an interesting thing to, to, to watch out for. Okay. Uh, so I, I guess it's interesting that when you, you were talking about, um, you know, a little while ago uh, about the you know, institutions and, and, and having to play catch up and having to respond. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, as the, um, for example, as the, the perception of t changes, right? And as, as we've moved, you know, within it from access to sort of impact and demonstrating value and, and uh, thinking yeah. about how it serves the community in which, in which it's offered. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and, and also, I mean, I think, not just with the onset of, of, I guess, more widespread online learning, but, you know, more broadly, a, a rethinking about the value of, of higher education, um, you know, in terms of cost, in terms of, of, of impact. And, and maybe the sort of, and again, a rethinking about, as you said at the beginning, sort of vocational and um, professional qualifications. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, we're not going to move away from, uh, and clearly we're not going to move away from a need for quality assurance. That's that's evident. But just the way in which it's actually done, you know, whether or not it's sort of, as uh, I say, but like privatized, you know, whether or not it's it's become yeah. institutionally uh, uh, more more focused. Um, but I mean, I guess what we are certain about is that the the landscape is, as you said, is shifting and and growing every, every day yeah. right so we the challenges are are, are numerous it is you see in, in in the uk things have changed over uh, over the past few years uh, with the and it is related to some of the consideration um uh, i was uh, i was sharing just now uh, so in, in, in the qa was established in 1997 and that was as a as a result of a merger of uh, um, the quality assurance functions of the higher education funding councils in the four nations of the UK, uh, which are, um, you know, quasi-governmental bodies, and then uh, um, uh, the quality assurance unit, which was established by institutions themselves to assure the public that the universities uh, that they represented um, were doing a good job. So, so the QA was 
was created and, and it became a buffer body between government and the sector. Mm-hmm. And that guaranteed some form of independence. Um, then things have ch- uh, changed, particularly in England, with the establishment of the Office for Students. And what took to, to that uh, a, num- a number of considerations, but if I have to, to, to simplify, was a perception that uh, after 20 years, where uh, UK, in this case, English universities, went through the QA institutional review process, perhaps things could have been done differently in order to, uh, to, um, to maximize the benefit uh, and the returns that institutions would get from, from undergoing external quality assurance. So it was an idea of uh, adopting a risk-based approach. The office for students also um, increasingly uh, started to place an emphasis on, uh, on outcomes. One of the reasons being also that in England there's been a process of privatization of uh, higher education and uh, therefore the cost for funding higher education shifted on, on the shoulder of students. That's why the Office for Students, the Office for Students was there to, uh, uh, to was established to guarantee um, um, good value for money for, uh, for students, so the focus on outcomes, on employment, employability. So, um, uh, so quality assurance has changes for different reasons, for different priorities, different countries, or depending also on how the higher education system is funded, the number of considerations that to be um, uh, to be considered, and uh, and increasingly without con- without considering also this other another dimension of of, uh, of complexity that with internationalization of education you also now see the internationalization of quality assurance with quality assurance um, bodies offering their accreditation quality assurance services internationally and sometimes foreign countries also looking for internationalizing looking to internationalize their own national uh, sectors looking to reach out to international accreditation bodies to support that so it's a it's a it's a fast evolving um uh, landscape yeah it's a bit of a, of a jungle <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay I, I think that's 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 how we yeah. should leave it yeah, yeah, yeah it's a jungle out there I, I, yeah. absolutely yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful protect yourselves at all time yes yeah <laughs> no. yeah that, 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 that's right and uh, but you know uh, it is a uh, it, it, it is uh, interesting at least if you if you if you like international education and uh, and quality assurance interesting conversation and you know thank you very much for um uh, for for letting me offload uh, <laughs> No, my 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 pleasure. I'm, I'm I was just sitting here fascinated, um, and uh, I mean it's it's you know it's it's a fundamental and, and integral part of of all of our lives. Those of us that, that you know work and, and and indeed study right in international uh, education or, or indeed any education right. It's 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 foundational to to the very thing that we are participating in, um, and uh, and it's it's very interesting to sort of have an expert pull the curtain back a little bit and, and show us, you know, the, the wizard and, and see how things are, are being thought of and, uh, and debated, you know, with it, within the rooms. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, very encouraging to, to know it's not that, you know, it's not that there are no answers. It, it's just that you, you're continually asking questions, right? And, and it's, it's a constant drive yeah. to, <laughs> to improve it. Uh, absolutely, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, um, it's a good way to put it in, to conclude, which is the important thing is that we don't stop asking ourselves questions because that's how we we may prevent ourselves to become a rock, to, to fossilize <laughs> ourselves you know, by, by keeping asking questions. 
Yeah. No, that's wonderful. Um, Fabrizio, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been, uh, been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you back on, because um, I'm sure your thinking will have changed in a, in a, a month or so's time. And, you know, new, new, <laughs> so. new evolutions will be, will be shown. So um, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah.